Please take your Bibles to Luke chapter 8 again. In the last message, last week, we noted that Jesus went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. Chapter 8, verse number 1. The message that he gave to the crowds was conditioned on their ability to receive the truth that he presented. And thus he gave this parable of the sower. And when the disciples asked him what that meant, he explained it to them, telling them that it was not given to the crowds to, uh, to know the secrets of the kingdom. It was for their benefit now that he would explain this to them and he, and he conditioned that upon the, these words here, verse number 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear? You say, well, yeah, I hear. Maybe you need a hearing aid, but, you know, to make it a little clearer and plainer. But that's not, it's not your physical ears that Jesus is referring to here. It's your spiritual hearing. Are you born again? Is your spiritual ears awakened to hear? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In this gospel age, kingdom citizens are being called out by the gospel and then being instructed to live according to kingdom principles. The kingdom of God is invading the earth. And as it comes its people, its citizens, are to live by these kingdom principles, which are different from the, ki from the principles in the world. We're to avoid the world. We are to shun the world. We are to not live by the world. We are to live by the kingdom and kingdom principles. And living by these kingdom principles requires that we know how to bow the knee to King Jesus in full surrender and faithful and complete obedience. There's our struggle. Our struggle with the flesh. Because we have owned ourselves as our own gods. We're going to make our own way. We're going to do our own thing. No more. Not if you have been born from above. Now the struggle with our flesh is that we know how to bow the knee to King Jesus. Of those who then were listening to this uh, kingdom message, and this is the parable uh, of the of the sower. It basically it's summarized like this: of those who were listening to the kingdom message, some were continuing to allow the cares of the world and the riches of this present age to corrupt the kingdom values in their lives. Then he explained that others, although they had received the kingdom message with joy, nevertheless fell away when testing came. And it was only those who held fast in an honest and good heart bore fruit with patience, according to verse number 15. And to these, Jesus admonished, Take care how you hear. They had ears to hear. So they should now take care to listen carefully and obey 
what they heard. And so then to those who then gained spiritually from this hearing and holding fast, he promised more would be given. But to those who gained little, even what they had gained would be taken away. That's according to verse number 18. Now, Luke followed the explanation of the parable of, uh, with the Lord here likening the kingdom to a lighted lamp in a sin-darkened world. It was the Father's purpose to use the light to expose the secrets of evil men that they were desperate to conceal. This particularly pertains to those who profess to be Christians. It's interesting how many times they hide things, cherish, that they cherish in their hearts, but they know are not right. They're sinful and God disapproves, but they cherish them anyway. God said, no, you're not going to be able to do that. It's going to be brought to light. So therefore, the take heed how you hear is important here because hearing is more than just listening. It is uh, paying careful attention to the word that is transformational. That these transformational truths and then enable the unglorified saints to bear lasting fruit for the kingdom. That's the key. Are you bearing fruit for the kingdom? Not are you successful in your own living, but are you bearing fruit for the kingdom? That's how they would profit in bearing fruit. However, it is not possible for one to pursue worldly interests and still bear fruit for Christ. You've got to make a decision. Am I going to be successful in my earthly life? Or am I, or am I going to be successful in kingdom life? And it's only kingdom life that's eternal. Where are you bearing the fruit? Bearing fruit then re even requires one to forsake all for the kingdom of God. Even family. Which prompted Jesus to say, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my, yes, even his own life also, excuse me, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now this requires a word of explanation. That's Luke chapter 14, verse 22. And that truth is going to be demonstrated here in verses 19 to 21, but I need to, to make a, a quick explanation. The word hate, when it involves sinful humans, is wrong. When it involves sinful humans, it's wrong. There is a righteous hatred, there is an unrighteous hatred. The world is full of unrighteous hatred. So when Jesus tells us here that we're to hate father, mother, brothers, and sisters, he's not talking or telling us to do this in a worldly sense of unrighteous hatred, but rather 
he is telling us this is a priority situation. I must say to my family, you must take second place to Jesus. That does not mean that I don't love them. But it means that I don't place their priority above the priority of the kingdom. And that's illustrated right here for us in, at verse number 19, where Luke here inserts uh, an incident that on first reading you'd say it doesn't seem to really have any connection with the previous text, but ah, it does. Listen to it. Jesus' human family, his mother and his brothers came to see him. But because of the crowd that pressed in around Jesus, they could not get to him. So they're outside a little frustrated. But they got word to Jesus by some means, a messenger, who then uh, told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to see you. And what was Jesus' response to them? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and do it. In other, in other words, he was saying, my mother and my brothers, if they're truly believers in Jesus Christ, will be hearing the word of God and doing it. And, and, uh, but these disciples here are also my mother and my brothers. These folks out here in the crowd that have heard my word and believed it, they are my mothers and my brother. What is the condition of being related to Jesus? Hearing the word of God and doing it. And by hearing the word of God, they don't mean just listening to the sermon preached. They mean going out and obeying it. And as I said here, a word of caution is due. Jesus was not saying here in any way that his natural kin were not important to him. But he did say, therefore, in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, so therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. It's priority. Is Jesus, King Jesus and the kingdom, a priority to you? Or are they just, uh, you know, if I got time on Sunday, I'll go listen to the preacher. But the rest of my life is mine. I live it according to my standards and my... my uh, direction and I'm going to pay attention to the things that I need it doesn't work by saying this he's not telling believers to abandon their familiar familial responsibilities their responsibilities to family either these responsibilities however are governed by priority if one fails to put Jesus and his kingdom first, then all his other responsibilities will be met with uh, dismal failure. But if he puts Jesus in the priorities of the kingdom first, then all these other responsibilities will be met with much greater success. To put Jesus aside and use family duties as an excuse, will not 
survive the judgment. And I would call attention to Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul tells husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Paul's not contradicting Jesus who says to hate father and mother and, and wife and, and so forth. No, not at all. So then, uh, it just simply, this is simply the situation that we are to leave all and follow Jesus. And if we do, then husbands will love their wives with a far greater and purer love. And the wives will benefit from that love. So then let's note four other incidents in this chapter that also illustrate how the kingdom of God has invaded the world and demonstrates superiority over all else. Part of chapter 8 that involves the teaching of Jesus, which we looked at last week, verses 4 through 18, focused on hearing the word. Jesus is the word. He's the word incarnate. And... Uh, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father admonished the disciples out of the cloud there in verse number 9, or chapter 9, verse number 35. This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. He takes priority, even over Old Testament Scripture. In the chapter before us then, Jesus demonstrated his authority over nature over which the astonished disciples recoiled with fear and cried out who then is this, is he that commands even the winds and the water to obey him this this was an awakening for them they they had hearing ears but they weren't they weren't to, paying careful attention to how they hear, and Jesus had to illustrate that for them, demonstrate that for them there in that boat with the raging storm. And when he hushed the storm, what did they do? They're astonished. And they said, who in then is this? See, they didn't recognize that he was the king. So the question is, is, Jesus, you're your Lord? If winds and waters obey Jesus, will you not? So then Jesus admonished his disciples, take, take care how you hear. Verse 18. Now he would test them. The king, listen to my son. He's, he is my anointed one. He is the king, and we must trust him in every circumstance of life. And this, so there are five instances in this uh, chapter that follow here that demonstrate his authority. The first one is his, that he demands lordship over our domestic lives. We saw that one already. Verses 19 to 21. Does Jesus have lordship over your domestic life? Second, he demonstrated the power over destructive nature. The wind and the, the storm there on the sea. That's verses 22 to 25. Then number three, he 
demonst- he demanded submission of demons. Verses 26 to 39. By, they, by the way, they knew him. They called him by name. He steps out of the boat in strange Gentile country and a man, demon-possessed man, runs up to Jesus and recognizes who he is and called him by name. That's interesting. And then number four, returning to Galilee after being in that Gentile region, he revealed his power over disease. When a woman in the crowd had faith to touch the hem of his garment to find healing. That's verses 42 to 48. And number five, lastly, Jesus demonstrated authority over death. Five Ds. Aren't you impressed? (laughs) Over death. Then that's verses 49 to 56. The last two we're going to save for next week. Lord willing. But we're going to turn now to the second. His lordship over the storm. Here, the raging of the seas. Thus he said to the disciples, and notice verse 22. He said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. If Jesus intends to go to the other side of the lake, he's going to get to the other side of the lake. He's King Jesus. Storms were not unusual on the Sea of Galilee. They, they came up suddenly and often fiercely. And the, and the fishermen that were among Jesus' disciples would have attested to that fact. And as they left the, sea, the shore there and started out on the lake, such a storm arose. And it was a savage one. As it raged, the disciples watched the waves swamping the deck and began to realize that they were in imminent danger of the ship's capsizing. They feared for their lives. They didn't trust the Lord. They, now they, were, they were looking at the circumstances and they were fearing for their lives. But where was Jesus? Says he was in the hinder part of the boat. Sound asleep. So the disciples went to him, woke him up, and they said, Master, we're perishing. Master, Master, we're perishing. Verse 24. And they had assessed the the situation normally, in natural terms, it was accurate. This was nature as they knew it. Nevertheless, had not the Lord told them, we're going over to the other side. (laughs) And Jesus is the Lord. However, note that the disciples apparently did not listen to him. And what they also believed about the Lord is evident in their addressing him. Notice, they, they called him Master. This from the Greek word epistates, which means a superintendent or an overseer. 
They weren't recognizing him as the Kurios, Lord. They didn't understand that at this point. They're about to get an awakening because Jesus awoke and just said, Be still! And suddenly the storm is a calm. I would encourage you to try that next time. The storm is raging outside the door. Just step out and say, be still! And see how much it obeys you. <laughs> and immediately, this storm obeyed Jesus and returned to the calm. Now, what was the disciples' reaction to that? They looked at that situation and now they're suddenly filled with great fear. They had a great fear of the storm, but now they have a greater fear of the one who said, be still. That's good. That's good. They had witnessed his power before over sickness and death. But nature? Ah, they had just experienced the imminent possibility of their deaths at the mercy of a raging storm, and then they witnessed their Lord's greater power over the storm and the threat. Now, trembling with fear, they said among themselves, Who is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Now they've got, now they're beginning to understand this Jesus is just not a mere man, a powerful mere man. He is God himself in the flesh. The one who created all it, all of nature to start with. And nature obeys him implicitly. Isn't that interesting? Nature obeys Jesus, but his people don't. Had they never, had these disciples never read the psalm, O God, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness around you, you rule the raging sea of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. Or had they never read Psalm 93, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up. O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the, uh, the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. He's mightier than any of that. Verses 2 and 3 there of Psalm 93. Or what about Psalm 107? We read that the Lord commands and raises the stormy winds. The storm rages and helpless sailors' courage just melts away. They reel and stagger like drunken men and come to their wit's end. However, in faith they cry to the Lord and He delivers them, stills the storm and hushes the waves. And then they arrive at their desired haven. And what do they do? They thank him for his steadfast love 
Did none of the disciples remember these psalms? Had they never read them? So Jesus asked them then, Where's your faith? Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. I would argue to you that the Lord is not safe. He cannot be tamed and subdued to make us comfortable and secure. He's not the mush God of much modern Christianity. Jesus brought the disciples out to see that he was the Lord God of hosts, ruling the raging of the sea. I don't know about you, but I want to follow that God. But to do so could be very stressful. That brings us to the second thing here, the ruler of the supernatural, and that's verses 26 through 39, or actually the third, this is the third incidence, the second in my outline here. Arriving safely on the eastern shore, he said he wanted to go across, and he wanted to go across because now the disciples need to see this situation as well. They recognize that he's the ruler of the disasters of the sea. Now he's going, they're going to find out that he's also the Lord of the demons. Arriving on the eastern shore of the country of the Gergesenes. Uh, some Bible translations have Gadarenes. The King James Version, for example. And, and what we have here is a uh, manuscript difference. The question is, which is, is better? The, the city of Gadara is six miles from the lake. Whereas Gergesa, the city there that's now modern Kersa, Kersa, is near the lake, very near the lake. So I think the Gergesenes is probably the better translation there. This was clearly a Gentile region as indicated by the pig farm. And one of the questions is, to whom did they sell these pigs? <laughs> I wonder how many ham sandwiches were eaten by uh, the Jews <laughs> across the lake. We don't know. What do we have them today? Uh, it smells like ham. Oh, no, no, that's not ham. That's <laughs> uh, Anyway, Jesus' coming here was the precursor to the one body here composed of both Jew and Gentile. And uh, I, what we see here is now Jesus disembarks from the, the boat and a demon-possessed man met him, came running to him. In Matthew's account, there are two demon-possessed men who come. Men of fierce countenance coming out of the tombs. The man, Luke features, immediately fell at Jesus' feet and cried out, What have you, you to do with me, Jesus? Notice, he named him, Neat Jesus, and he knows who he is, Son of the Most High God. I beg you, do not torment me. 
He, la he later says, don't, don't send us into the abyss. Because they know that one day Jesus is going to send them there. Matthew has, has it, but what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. These demons knew that Jesus was the judge of all the earth and that one day he would judge them and condemn them to eternal torment. And they feared that he had come for that purpose and begged him not to do it then. Mark's account has only one man, as Luke. And some have suggested that here's a contradiction. Why, is, why does Luke and Mark have only one man and Matthew have two? And I believe the reason is, and I don't believe there's a contradiction. I believe that the one man of Mark and Luke is the only man who actually was delivered. He alone returned to his home to testify to the power of Jesus to his own people. The other man did not. Mark has the longer account. He wrote of the demoniac who lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains, for he had been often been bound with shackles and chains. Can you imagine this? A man that broke chains so easily? He just wrenched them apart. And he broke uh, the shackles in pieces. He'd be a, a fright to some police officers today. <laughs> Take their handcuffs and just... <laughs> Whoa! Nobody had strength to, endure, uh, to subdue this man. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he always cried out, cutting himself with stones. Can you imagine the torment this poor guy was in? And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demon's response to Jesus was because Jesus kept demanding the demon to come out of the man. He was telling him, demon, get out of there. So then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. You know, legions is a thousand, one thousand. For many demons had entered him. Think of this poor fellow. Just multiple demons inside this man. And the demons believed that Jesus wanted them to come out so that he might send them into the abyss. There, verse number 31. So they begged him to let them go into the pigs instead that were feeding on the hillside nearby. So Jesus gave them permission and the pigs immediately committed suicide by running down into the lake and drowning. 
verse 33. Here's the interesting part of the story. The men who were attending the swine were terrified and ran into the village to report the incident. Then a great crowd came out to see what was going on and they found Jesus in the man. And this man was now sane, fully clothed, and sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind. The people's response then to this was fear. I'm sure they feared the man crying out in the tombs and I don't think people were going out at night and to have a little picnic in the tombs. Not with that, with those two demons, uh, demon-possessed men out there. But you'd think that they'd say, whoa, this is good. Uh-uh, they feared it. So then they, here was this man who had power over the demon-possessed. And they didn't fall down at Jesus' feet like the demon-possessed man did and to seek his grace and mercy and forgiveness for themselves, uh-uh. Rather, they asked Jesus to leave. You know, that's the world. That's the world right there. You want to know what the world's like? That's it. Did you know that uh, the FBI has asked to report, for banks to report on people who buy Bibles? We don't want Jesus here. He interferes with our, with our lives. So they asked Jesus to leave and Jesus got in the boat to leave. But the man begged Jesus to, that, that he be allowed to go with him. And Jesus declined that. Why? Because he has a more important mission. He has a greater duty. He can go with Jesus and I'm sure that it would have been a wonderful experience. But Jesus said, no, I need you here. You see how these people responded to me? You need to go and explain to them who I am. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. That's verse 39a. The people of the area needed to see the greatness of Jesus. They needed to hear the testimony of one who had previously terrified them in the tombs. And, and he obeyed. He obeyed, see. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then take care how you hear. And that man obeyed Jesus. And he went away. Proclaiming throughout the whole city. How much Jesus had done for him. Verse 39. Wow. Closes the chapter. Or closes this incident here. In the chapter. So in conclusion. Let me ask you. First of all. Do you have ears to hear? Are you truly born from above? And if so, are you one who hears the word and holds it fast in an honest and good heart 
and bears fruit with patience? Do you take care how you hear the word? Are you one who hears the word of God and does it? And obeys it? Which means in the midst of a storm, you have faith to believe that God is in charge and that storm is God's will for you? So that you're able to then live fearlessly in a dark and fearful world? Are you set for spiritual warfare? You know, we hear very little of demons today. I, I believe a lot of people that have mental problems are demon-possessed. But are you pre prepared for spiritual warfare? Are you prepared to declare how much God has done for you? Like this man who was freed from his demon possession? And will you proclaim everywhere how much Jesus has done for you? Because that's what it's all about. That's really what it's all about. Let's pray. Father, wow, these incidents in Scripture, as we read them and as we meditate upon them, as we consider the truths that are in there, we ask the Spirit of God to enable us to comprehend them and then enable us to obey them, to follow them, to see how they apply in our own lives. Lord, storms arise in our lives. Do we have faith or do we fearfully react? Do we trust you? Lord, there are spiritual warfare in the world and the demons do we do we walk by faith and trust you even in these instances knowing that we are set for this spiritual warfare lord declaring how great you are and how much you've done for us lord strengthen us not to call you Master, but to call you Lord. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.